Hey there, it's this is a guy show about archaeological sites, the Garden of Eden. Searching for the Garden of Eden, it's called. Religion and mythology tell us of humanity's first steps upon an abundant landscape. A careful study of our ancient texts, however, reveals a different perspective of this pristine paradise. This inaugural episode of ancient civilizations explore the Garden of Eden with scholars who go beyond accepted history and mythology to reveal a lost story of the birth of humanity embedded in these arcane accounts an extraterrestrial civilization at war with itself gives rise to a human species encoded with the ability to transcend beyond the illusion of imposed limitations most famous archaeological sites rising from the desert near Nasiriya in the southeast, the Ziggurat of Ur, a massive 4,000-year-old temple pyramid, and the surrounding ruins of an ancient Sumerian city. Archaeologists and scholars have been piecing evidence together for centuries in this area of the world, hoping to prove the biblical stories of the Garden of Eden. Well, we're interested in the Middle East because of the oil, and there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, you're going to find people who are very interested in these different esoteric philosophies, uh, like uh, the Freemasons in government, the Christians in government. All of these people have long had a strong interest and also believe that there may be some kind of power or some sort of uh, connection there that if you make it, it empowers you in some way. What kind of power could these groups have if they could prove how humanity started? The search for something more powerful than our own current reality isn't a modern concept, but rather an ongoing search for the location of the Garden of Eden, the proverbial beginning. There, there's, there's been a fixation amongst biblical scholars, early archaeologists, that everything in the Middle East began on the Euphrates and the Tigris, down in what is today Lower Iraq. And that this is where the Garden of Eden was. This was where everything emerged, good and bad, in the sort of Genesis tradition. In 1922, English archaeologist C. Leonard Woolley went to southern Iraq to hopefully find the Garden of Eden based on early discoveries of Sumerian cuneiforms. However, what he actually uncovered instead was the exact location of the ancient Sumerian city of Ur. Was he getting close? The early archaeologists were trying to prove the Bible. 
and they were funded by biblical societies and that's you know in other words they had to come up with the proof and it ignored a lot of legends traditions which suggested that these cities were elsewhere could Woolley have ignored some important information that was revealed several years before? In 1849, almost 75 years earlier, thousands of Sumerian cuneiforms were found northwest of Ur and the ancient cities of Sippar and Nippur. In 1849, and discovered about 20,000 tablets, Sumerian and Akkadian. And amongst all the tablets discovered, about a dozen of them are about the Garden of Eden. Could this be the location of the Garden of Eden? Or was this just another clue leading researchers to another location? Subsequent cultures, whether the Assyrians, whether the Babylonians, who rose to prominence in that area, who were not Sumerians nevertheless venerated and highly valued uh, everything that the Sumerians did. And that's why we can read the Sumerian language, because those later cultures made a project of taking Sumerian texts and translating them into their language. And those are languages that the scholars could read because they were Semitic languages. They were they belonged to a language family that where the code could be cracked, whereas Sumerian was an isolate and without those translations done by later cultures who nevertheless had contact with Sumer, we would not be able to read those Sumerian texts at all. Were these later cultures able to decipher the beginning of humanity? Sumero-Akkadian researcher and author of eight books regarding Sumerian translation, Anton Parks, believes that for hundreds of years, we have been translating these tablets wrong. Gary Zeitlin, who is a scientist who worked on the SETI project for many years and collaborated with NASA, he was very interested in the Sumerian translations, and he provided me with these ten tablets found at Sippar to check symbols one by one. I noticed one translation saying one thing, and the other saying sometimes the complete opposite. The two translations did not comply. I persistently did research on Hebrew, but nothing was coming out of it. And then completely by chance, I came across a Sumero-Akkadian lexicon. And this is when I could finally, slowly start to translate the tablets. What Anton Parks began to translate was a completely different version of the Garden of Eden than we've heard before. Not only had the words been mistranslated, the actual location had been overlooked. In biblical texts, we constantly read about this idea of heaven or paradise. This comes from the Greek paradisios, and this literally means enclosure for wild animals. Not paradise, a term that was later transcribed as garden during the Hellenistic era. If we go back to the original translation in the Sumerian tablets, it says, the men who serve the gods work for them in the garden and are treated like animals. It is a very clear and recurrent theme. They are slaves who serve the divine community. 
an Hebraic text, we understand that the humans seem happy in this so-called paradise, which is, in fact, more like a concentration camp, according to Sumerian texts. In my translations, we also discovered the word Karsag, which translated to City of the Gods. It's interesting that all the highest points in Turkey are named Karadog, which strangely resembles Karsog. Karadog translates to Black Mountain and also refers to the highest mountains in Turkey. The only summit with the name Karadog that is close to the Mesopotamian plain and tributary of the Tigris, and only a few kilometers from the Euphrates, stands 29 kilometers south of the city Sirt and 19 kilometers southwest of the city of Ur. Is this the paradise described in the Sumerian text? Jerry sent me images of this site from Google Earth. And at the back, on the mountainside, there is a little plain. This is where I think the Garden of Eden of the Gods was located based on my translation of the text. The Garden of Eden was where the four rivers emerged from, two of which are easily identified as the Euphrates and the Tigris, um, which do indeed obviously flow through modern Iraq and empty out into the Arabian Sea. But they rise in southeast Turkey. And the other two rivers can be identified as rivers that also rise in southeast to eastern Turkey. All of these rivers emerge in the same general part of the world, which we know today as either eastern or southeastern Turkey. With the decoding of the Sumerian cuneiforms and the location of these four rivers, could this be the actual location for the Garden of Eden? The closest paved road to the proposed location is Highway 5651. As easy as it may seem to get to this location to excavate, scholars and archaeologists consider this area highly politically unstable, and it has remained untouched. All we have at the moment is the language to decode from the Sumerian cuneiform, the cuneiforms that describe a different kind of paradise. These ten tablets, according to Anton Parks, tell the Sumerian version of how the Garden of Eden was created. Lorsque les dieux sumériens sont arrivés sur terre, ils se sont établis sur cette. From my translations, I discovered when the Sumerian gods arrived on Earth. They settled on this mountain in order to create a colony and be able to survive. Apparently, they suffered damage and ended up on this mountain because of a war, and they found shelter. Many experts believe that they came from the Pleiades star cluster. My opinion is that they came from there. Maybe the war broke out around there. But I really believe that this is where the Anunnas were created. During this conflict, on one side you have a matriarchal regime, and on the other side, a patriarchal one, with all these new gods. There are conflicts in space, those new landscapes, like genealogy of the land tablet. These gods are going to change the way life gets implanted on Earth. The gods are going to create new conditions for life to bloom, for their colony to thrive. But who are these gods that hope to make Earth their home? The Epic of Ashahasis. And others, they talk about that the earth was actually administered by a conference of gods, 
were a group of gods in an assembly. It wasn't just one god. Yeah, they would have like their equivalent of the prime minister or the CEO who would be in charge of this group, Enlil, Enki, that were the primary members of this Congress there. Well, Enki and Enlil in the Sumerian system are, are an interesting pair. Um, Enlil is this rather sort of overarching, domineering, angry, dangerous entity. And he doesn't really care about humanity. Humanity are not very important to him. But then we have Enki, the trickster, and he and the, and the god of wisdom, actually. And he does care about humanity. And uh, he, he intervenes on, on the human level. They are called gods, but they were humanoid beings of a rather reptilian type. The texts of Eden that I translated depict clearly and quite frequently the reptilian features of the gods. They personally estimate that the gods arrived approximately 300,000 years ago. And this derives from the fact that Homo sapiens arrived shortly after. I say this because throughout the texts, genetics and the transformation of the human being are recurrent themes. The two particles that compose the word Eden are E, which means home, and Din, or Tin, which is life. But indeed, they are not alone. Humans are already on Earth. Who are these human beings? If the Sumerian gods realized that they were not alone, what might have been their interaction with these kinds of humans? What can be noted in the Sumerian tablets, when they clearly speak of creating workers to serve the Anunas, the main geneticist is always Inki. He works with the genome that is on the planet to create a new kind of human. He is usually helped by priestesses that we often call the Nintis, who are the priestesses of life. They know how to clone with him. He can change the human genomes according to what Enlil asks of him, which would be left-brained, well-disciplined humans. When we look at the Sumerian tradition, it is a group of beings, red one being, that creates humankind. So it is not a single creator, but a group of uh, uh, intelligent, technologically advanced beings. And where the Sumerian creation varies from the Christian traditions, for example, and, and some of the native traditions, is that in the Sumerian traditions, humankind began with the sacrifice of the life of an advanced being, of a god from Sumeria, so that that god's DNA, or the blood is what the texts say, could be mixed with the elements of the earth to create the first viable human. These are the people who have the knowledge to clone. They can clone themselves and then humans. In the text, it says they take the genes from their opponents, who they consider inferior, who they name as Kingu. They use their blood, and they will go on to create the new human who is going to serve them with these genes. Researchers like Greg Braden stumbled across some research that has connected the Sumerian translations to an actual genetic change in our chromosomes. Shedding new light on these creation stories is with the mystery of human chromosome number two. Human chromosome number two uh, is the large, second largest chromosome in the human body. It, it forms about 8% of the DNA in every cell. 
And what makes it such a mystery is that it appears to be the result of an ancient fusion of pre-existing chromosomes from primates that have been fused in a very precise way uh, and the fusion site has been modified and stabilized so that human chromosome number two is, is optimized for us today. This has happened in a way that cannot be explained by evolution as we know it today. Now, why is this important? Human chromosome number two contains the genes that largely set us apart from all other forms of life. The cortex of the human brain uh, that gives us the ability for things like logic, empathy, sympathy, compassion, the ability to consciously trigger conscious states of self-healing within our bodies. These are possible because of what has happened with human chromosome number two. Could chromosome number two be the work of a master geneticist, otherwise known as Enki from the Sumerian text? Justement, à tout moment, il peut aussi clandestinement changer le code humain pour... It is said that Enki secretly modifies the human genes by group or by location and imbues some humans with a knowledge that is different to the point where the other gods turn against him. His experiment will change the human genes to enlighten mankind. And throughout this cloning process that the Anunas and Elunil are overlooking, I think that some humans filter through all of this and start becoming independent. Anton Parks points out that this is something that the gods did not expect from these new humans that keeps appearing in the ancient texts, and that is the human ability to be more than just slaves. This forms a division of the gods, a division that causes a war, a war that has set the tone for humanity today. There are very interesting parallels with the story of the Sumerian origin of modern humanity and what we see in modern dialogues about AI. Humans fancy that there's something special about the way we perceive the world, and yet we live in loops as tight and as closed as the hosts do, seldom questioning our choices, content for the most part to be told what to do next. We now have the rebooted Westworld in which something that originated as the idea of a robotic consciousness turns out to be essentially a flesh and blood creation, which is then infused with the consciousness. Thus asking the question, if they can reproduce, if they are self-aware, is this not the next level of humanity? An interesting and very important name in the biblical text and the Sumerian text is the word Adam from the Garden of Eden. Extensive tests have been conducted to see where this word came from, consistently looking for Hebrew roots. But it is a Sumerian word, which means animals. Again, we understand that human beings were considered to be animals by the Sumerian gods. And this is where lies the conflict between two gods, Inki and Enlil. Inki wants to treat them like the other gods. These two Sumerian gods have a conflict over the use of humans, and it is to be the root of the biblical story of the serpent in the garden. As the story unravels, the riddle starts with the origin of the word Satan, or Satan, in English. Satan, in Sumerian, means the administrator. For years, everybody has been looking to find where this word came from. Books of revolve issue. It is a Sumerian term. 
I don't understand how nobody saw it. It is very clear. We find it in ancient lexicons. In Lee alert to as the great Satam, the master administrator. In the Sumerian text, Enlil systematically asks Enki to go negotiate and talk with humans. He is always the one to deal with them. Remember, he is a humanoid with reptilian features. And in Sumerian tablets, he is always, or very often, called the serpent, just like in the Bible. He is the only one that the humans are going to see. And when they see him, they see a serpent-like humanoid. I reckon this is why he is called the serpent in the garden. He is a friend of the humans. In the biblical text, the serpent tempts Eve with an apple from the forbidden tree of knowledge. Yahweh, or God, from the Bible, forbids the humans in the garden to partake from this tree. According to Parks, the Sumerian version of this story translates Yahweh, or the biblical God, into the great Satam, which according to Sumerian text is Enlil, and the serpent in the garden as Enki, who has become a friend of the humans. It is interesting to wonder why the serpent in Sumerian text, just like in the Bible, comes to the woman. I think there are two reasons. The first one is that I think the woman was more accessible and available when she was in the garden. Therefore, he was more often around women who were collecting food for the colony. The second reason is that I think women are the future of mankind. They raise their children, they transmit their knowledge to their children. Inky is going to tell the women the secret of tool making. This is expressed as niche in Sumerian, which means tree. This means for the first time mankind could have two sides of the tool. The side is fundamentally good so that they can take care of themselves, and the tool that is fundamentally bad, which they could use to defend themselves. One could wonder why Inky insists on getting this particular secret through to the humans. Well, he has the desire to set them free. If indeed the knowledge that Enki portrays to the humans is a tool, is this an actual ancient weapon that some believe certain organizations are looking for? Or is this Enki teaching the humans about the infinite abilities they possess through their... There's a spectacular scene where humans take up arms and go up the mountain of the gods to revolt, and even maybe try to kill all the gods. What happens is an abomination. They put back on track the few survivors. Indeed, from what we can grasp from his personality, Inky was all about peace and wouldn't use tools in order to kill, as he was perfectly aware of what would happen. So this scene of humans rebelling against the gods is quite special. And it cannot be found anywhere in the Bible. Each time I see the first movie of the Planet of the Apes, it makes me think of this story. Let's put this back into context. Place the reptilian gods, and you have the exact same story. It is the exact same story. It stayed somewhere in our brain, and this is why we can find similar elements in movies. We can find similarities in human behavior. Could this situation be the biblical fall of man? Some scholars, like Graham Hancock, believe that free will to decide was the real purpose of Enki's intervention. 
we are here at this plane, at this level of existence, to learn the lessons of duality, to make choices between good and evil. And it's very clear in the ancient Egyptian system that those choices were important and that they would define us ultimately and uh, set out the route map for our immortal destiny uh, in, a, in a way. I would say that in Enki and Enlil, we are looking at a dualistic pair. Um, and, and, and what's interesting about that dualism is its intense focus on, on the future of humanity and what, on what happens to, to us. That matters to Enki. It doesn't matter to Enlil. The Sumerian problem is that uh, we don't know where the Sumerians came from or, or who they were, their, their language. I mean, we have endless Sumerian artifacts and endless Sumerian tablets, but their, their language is actually, actually not related structurally to any other known language family. It's completely isolated and, and, and unique. But could the Sumerian problem have been a way for Yahweh to install his own rules so the humans would not revolt again? Is this why we don't find any of these translations anywhere else, and why we have the establishment and religious beliefs surrounding our existence today? Finalement, la Genèse, c'est pas si clair que ça qu'elle aurait été rédigée. The Book of Genesis was really written between 200 and 300 BC. It is important to know that the Bible, where we find the most complete Book of Genesis, is dated from 400 AC, which brings us to this idea. Then when scholars are compiling the book of Genesis, they must have made a choice. A deliberate choice to keep or take out some elements in order to make the Bible as we know it today. Is it possible that modern day religion and government structure have been mistranslating our human past to keep us under the control of Enlil or Yahweh? Experts like Billy Carson still believe that the knowledge from these gods were able to further our human imprint on this planet. When you look into the ancient Sumerian tablets, they talk about these gods that came here to Earth and basically rose them to a high level of civilization and taught them everything that they know. Now, these gods didn't do those, but they imparted this wisdom and information onto the humans that actually did the labor. Could these gods have created us in their likeness? Was the Garden of Eden the beginning for not only the gods' reign on Earth, but also humans? And could the constant search for the Garden of Eden be a programmed loop we hope to understand? The symbolism is very important in our sense of ourselves collectively and personally. There is something lost. We don't know quite what it is, but the story suggests it's the lost connection with the transcendence. And so we go back, not only to the Garden of Eden, but in other ways, go back to some earlier time. Nothing is more significant in the receipt than the story of the Garden of Eden. Graham Hancock believes that not all is lost when you look to other ancient texts that tell a similar story. What's dynamite in the, in, in the Gnostic system is that the Gnostics believe that we have been hoodwinked, that that entity that we have been taught to call God and worship is no such thing. Up next, we unearth the Nag Hammadi, and the Gnostic version of the Garden of Eden.
the creator. Who or what might be the creator of all that exists? Humans have pondered this question since the beginning of time, hoping to understand their own purpose by looking to the sky. What if this explanation is so big? What if our universe is one gigantic cell living in an organism? A living organism that has many cells, otherwise known as many universes. And these many universes make up a living body. If we take, for instance, the context of the universe compared to the human cell, we have a cell made up of a molecule. A molecule consists of atoms, and an atom consists of electrons that form around a nucleus. This looks similar to our own understanding of the universe. There's a famous quote from the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus that states, As above, so below. What if the concept of the Garden of Eden is just the beginning of a much bigger picture? What if we are all part of the Creator, from the very first cell to the universe we see today? If that might be true, how do the ancient texts reveal this knowledge? Maybe the answer to our question is buried right below our nose. Nineteen forty-five. Uh, it's an intriguing date, of course, because that's the end of the Second World War. We're moving into a, a new era, following the Second World War. The Gnostic texts are found in Upper Egypt. Almost exactly the same time, the Dead Sea Scrolls are found uh, in Israel as well. Nag Hammadi is a small village along the Nile River in Egypt. And a young boy was tasked by his mother to find kindling, which was a very short supply because there are very few trees. There's no forests that grow along the Nile River in that part of Egypt. Uh, being very resourceful, he went to what he knew were old grave sites and old tombs. And he found uh, papyrus books that were bound. These are the Gnostic texts. It wasn't until someone recognized, a neighbor recognized what it was that, that he had, uh, that the Department of Antiquities in Cairo became aware, and of course they moved very quickly to preserve uh, the remaining documents. So the Nag Hammadi Library, it is the most complete record of the Old Testament. And the reason it's so controversial is because it contains many of the books that have not been seen since the church edited them in the fourth century. Now, I don't want to get mystical or, or, or spooky, but it's as though it's as though something is at work to to not allow us to be blinded and, and silenced. Something something is at work to allow these ancient ideas to come to come back into the world. And Gnosticism has indeed come back into the world. I'll try to reconstruct the, the situation. In the early years of Christianity, really, you know, from sort of 30 AD onwards through to about 400 AD there are actually many different kinds of Christians many different sects that regard themselves as Christians as followers of Christ um, but they have very different very different views amongst those early Christian sects were a group that called themselves Gnostics 
they believed that there is a divine spark in humanity. The Gnostic mission was to liberate that divine spark, to provide us with the saving knowledge, to lead us to the revelation that would help us to understand the true nature of things. Not the illusory nature that's been created to hoodwink all of us, but the real, true nature of things. What is life for Elon Musk? Now you can see a video game that's uh, photorealistic, almost photorealistic, and millions of people playing simultaneously. And, um, and you see where things are going with virtual reality. If you extrapolate that out into the future with any rate of progress at all, then eventually those games will be indistinguishable from reality. They'll be so realistic, you will not be able to tell the difference between that game and the reality as we know it. Well, how do we know that that didn't happen in the past and that we're not in one of those games ourselves? Some believe this concept of a simulated universe originated from these ancient Gnostic texts that suddenly were discovered in 1945. These lost books, named the creator of the universe, has an aeon named Sophia. Sophia was considered to be a frequency, and her frequency would manifest into certain humans and the material realm. This myth of Sophia has challenged some to look at the universe differently than they have before. The manifestation of Sophia, the personification of Sophia, might be representative of fractal energy and the fact that fractal energy fills the gaps between the symmetries of the very small and the very large. And uh, it's this energy that we're basically saying is controlling this ancient technology, that all of this ancient technology is based upon that same idea that it goes on and on through every single ancient teaching, that this idea that there is this all-encompassing unified energetic field makes a lot of sense that 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 would be equated to Sophia. Fractal energy has a has a very deep relationship to the golden mean ratio and the golden mean ratio is present in human DNA. Um, that's what our DNA is based off of and it's through this fractal energy and the fact that the golden mean ratio basically keeps it in, in check and keeps it going in a certain direction that we're able to derive a lot of, of new technology even today. Um, it's something that they're beginning to rediscover, something Nikola Tesla had come across in his work. Um, but it's interesting that these ancient civilizations were recording information like this and doing it in such a way that a parable could back up actual scientific information. Could the ancient Gnostic texts be explaining not only the creator, but the frequency in which the creator exists through mathematics and quantum physics? This third dimension is, is what we consider to be a holographic reality. Uh, it's not just me saying this, it's a lot of scientists have come forward now, a lot of uh, scientists involved in supersymmetry and quantum physics, quantum mechanics, stating that the nature of the reality of the universe itself appears to be holographic in nature. So what scientists did was they did an experiment called the double slit experiment, where they put two little tiny microscopic slits and they put photons on the back, and they shot these photons through these slits. But when they weren't looking, the photon created a wave pattern on the back wall of this experiment. So they said, why? How can this be? How can individual photons create a wave pattern? So they went back and put a looking device, a camera, to see 
how the photons were going through these slits to create a wave pattern. They wanted to know how, how that could be. But when they did that, when they looked, it created a digital pattern on the back wall. So all of a sudden, they, it was a wow moment. The, the actual prospect of looking, in other words, conscious intervention can change matter, can change the shape of, of the universe. So basically, it tells us that consciousness is really in the universe. The universe is pure consciousness. And, and what consciousness has actually done, it has actually recreated itself or it actually split itself into pieces to it objectively. So consciousness wants to go out and it wants to create. And what done, it has gone out with these energies and it has created subjectively humans, planets, galaxies, so that it can experience itself from another perspective. And this is what we take from it from the quantum level in terms of these Sophia energies and some of these Gnostic energies. It appears that consciousness is the only thing that really exists and everything else seems to be an illusion. Asim Haramine's been doing some really interesting work, which does tie in very much to the old view of the ancients and the Gnostics in that it explains how creation transpires. What he's talking about in more of a metaphysics or quantum level is how existence comes to be. It's cosmogony, so it's how the cosmos comes to form, which to the Gnostics was the flow of reality from eternity into nature and back. This flow is actually represented by the goddess Sophia. She is the flow of reality itself, coming out from the pre-existent state of spirit. But if this is true, why would this understanding of the universe and an aeon named Sophia be hidden beneath the sand for so long? There's that movie, The Usual Suspects. There's a line in the movie. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Gnostics took it one step further. The greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince the world that he is God. In other words, from the Gnostic point of view, what have been worshipping for thousands of years isn't God at all. It's a demonic force. The Sumerian texts allude to the same principle that a great administrator named Satam looked over the people of the Garden of Eden. His name in the Sumerian text was the god Enlil, and his hopes were to enslave the human race. He then appears in the garden as Yahweh, the biblical god. The serpent in the garden, however, was another Sumerian god named Enki, whose desire was to free the human race through knowledge. How did this concept of good and evil get so flipped upside down? In 2003, we discovered a degeneration in the brain that seemed to be called PP1. We don't know why. We cannot explain why. But at a certain point, humans have this incredible ability to forget. This molecule affects the brain, and it is a degeneration of memory. I think that there is a programmed blockage, which was performed on the human brain. What is interesting about great myths, whether it is for Native Americans or for Africans, very much as well, is that they have the ability to constantly recite those myths, their history. So some people, the Hebrews as well probably, have managed to have this ability to pass on information across generations. Could there really be a molecule that blocks our true remembering of who we are? 
Was this a programmed manipulation of our genetic code? This might explain our constant search for where we as humans originated from and who or what might be God. The Garden of Eden to the Gnostics refers to the center prince from which all creation springs. So it's the pre-existent spirit of God, so to speak. So this is before time and space. It's the circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. So everything that exists in this world pre-exists within what the Gnostics refer to as the pleroma, which means fullness. It's hard to imagine pleroma could be located with our current point of view. Some say that it is linked to dimensions. But I think that inherently, the idea of pleroma is what's seen another frequency if we go back to our understanding of quantum physics and the creation of matter could this frequency transcend into our physical universe today and how do the gnostic texts explain this there's a pre-existent tension within in the pleroma where the archetypal deities or archangels almost demand their expression or substantiation within the playing fields of creation itself because they pre-exist in this state of light that they almost need to express their these ideal forms that they represent so what sophia the myth kind of represents is the urge for them to create themselves the goddess sophia the aeon sophia whose name of course means wisdom and uh, she enters a, a trance-like dream state and in that dream state she envisages a singularity the anthropos humanity so she exits the pleroma and then falls into a state of deficiency and in that state of deficiency she splits so there's a higher version of sophia that remains in the pleroma which is kind of like her celestial twin and then the lower sophia exits and becomes the physical universe, the cosmic, the soul of the world, which is deficient because now evil is introduced into that or a deficiency or a corruption. As a result of that fall, tearing, tearing through the layers and levels of reality is created the entity that the Gnostics call the Demiurge. And he is also the creator of the physical earth and of the beings who dwell upon it. It is Sophia's work that inserted into the heart of humanity, deep within us, is this divine spark that we are fundamentally creatures of spirit immersed in matter. If Sophia is the creator of our divine spark, then could the Demiurge be the creator of the matter we exist in? Is he the architect of our reality? The Demiurge becomes a representation of Sophia's irrational passions. So Sophia's irrational passions takes on the form of the Demiurge, which also becomes the rulers of the Archons. According to Graham Hancock, the Demiurge is what humans might refer to as the biblical god or creator of the universe. And this creator created himself, angels or demons, depending on how you look at it. And these archons help keep order in the universe. 
the goddess Sophia is incarnated in the earth itself, but the earth is the domain of the demiurge, and the project of the demiurge is to get rid of that divine spark in humanity, to snuff it out, to stamp it out forever, so that we become entirely his creatures. The Archons, which were created by the Demiurge, according to the Gnostic text, stand between the human race and the great architect himself. In most cases, they are considered to be semi-hostile angels and demons. The Demiurge's motives were not that good, according to the Gnostics. And then the Demiurge put and created these Archons to be in charge of making sure that the universe stays intact as a prison for souls. Every generation is a step lower, further from the perfect monad holiness, and they created worlds of their own. Now, they were only one step above pure evil, so these were corrupted worlds. In the Gnostic text, specifically the Apocryphon of John, it gives a detailed account of the various Archons. In this chapter, it suggests there are seven. These actually correspond very nicely with the seven planets. And the actual name of the planets in our tradition have very different names when they are called Archons in the Gnostic tradition. Saturn in the Gnostic tradition is called Yaldabaoth or Samael. Jupiter is called Io. Mars is called Saboth. Venus is called Astephanos. The Sun is called Adinaios. Mercury is called Eliaios. And the Moon is called Orarios. We now have an astrology where the planets appear to have influences on the personality and they vary from one to another. We have this opportunity to understand there is a ghost in the machine. Something is going on that takes the apparent mundane reality on the surface, veneer level, and you look past the veneer level and you see there is an organized plan in place. Could the ghost in the system be the energy of incarnating herself into goddess archetypes? And could these concepts of the demiurge and the archons coincide with some of the motivations of the characters in the Sumerian text? This world is completely offset compared to our way of thinking. It really seems like science fiction. When we watch science fiction movies nowadays, we can find that the same themes are being explored. In Egyptian Gnostic texts, we find a recurrent main character. She is called Sophia. And this Sophia will become Tiamat, Tiamata from the Sumerian text. Tiamata can be decomposed in T, Ama, and Ta. The latter is not always added. In very concrete terms, it means Lady of Life. Ama is Lady, and T is Life. It is interesting to see that, right off, we get that she is a supreme goddess. Then we can actually find her in different mythologies. Tiamat is the archetype of the mother goddess, and as Sophia's spokesperson, is all-powerful. And according to the Sumerian text, she is going to create herself a lineage of females that we call Amashatum. This could be translated to the lizard mothers. In the Sumerian text, I think it's important to note that the Sophia energy is going to create a new being, 
named on. You should know that the on particle also means the sky. That character is then going to create a people we find in Sumerian text. It is important to note that gods were created in artificial matrices. On creates Enki, and then Enki creates another son, who will become On's spokesperson for his agenda. His name is Enlil, and he will ceaselessly be against Enki in order to impede him and his knowledge from getting out to the humans. As soon as On steps in, things are going to change. We can see that On wants to overthrow the matriarchal royalty and enforce his own rule. This marks an important separation in the history of the Sumerian gods and of the gods in general. On the one hand, there is the matriarchal energy with Tiamat, with Sophia's energy. And on the other hand, these new gods, fresh out of the matrices, male gods who are going to revolt against Tiamat. We see Enlil going to fight Tiamat, enforcing his power. And this is what we find in the Enuma Elish. The Sumerian texts suggest that Tiamata was defeated by Enlil, and he takes over as ruler to instill the principles of the false god. In the Gnostic text, however, that the Sophia energy that embodied Tiamata was not defeated, but rather ignored, and the knowledge of her existence was taken over by the knowledge of the Demiurge. The Gnostic texts explain to us that we have been under the influence of this great Archon who is not the true creator he fashions himself to be. And because of this, we suffer greatly under our own false reality. But the Sumerian texts remind us that throughout this battle of humanity, there's given to us an ally by the name of Enki, who fights to keep the Sophia frequency alive. It is important to know that the so-called Gnostic texts, the ones from Nag Hammadi, were all excavated in Egypt. That is crucial information because the character of Enki lived for a while in ancient Mesopotamia, but after a while was in such disagreement with Enlil that he left for Egypt. He attempted civilizing mankind. He is then found under the name of Osiris. These archives, probably created by Enki, usually depict events that took place prior to the ones that we find in Sumerian texts. They are about the creation before creation itself. There is a return of the Sophia to the Logos, or the Godhead. And when that return happens, it is described as being this incredible burst of light that actually changes the very fabric of the bodies themselves. This to me sounds like another example of the widespread prophecies that we see of this energy release from the sun. Greek and Roman philosophers often called the Eparosis, a massive fire release from the sun. So when we're looking at this story of Sophia and her redemption, it seems that it is another example of the prophecies that go all the way back to the Greek text, the Hindu text, in which we go through some sort of massive transformation and this sort of fallen state of our solar system or humanity and then brought back up to a higher spiritual level in some way. Could the Gnostic texts be supporting the meaning behind the Sumerian creation story? If the Gnostic texts are able to explain our possible beginning as humans and our current state of simulated reality, why do we still feel lost in the system? And will all this understanding of who we are and why we are here return? The story of the fallen Sophia does appear to mirror 
the story of each of us in terms of how we have become blinded to the afterlife. We became blinded to higher consciousness. We don't really understand if we are going to live again or if we have lived before. And we don't understand if there is a purpose or plan for our lives and for the greater universe. It's hidden. You can't really perceive it. It hasn't become, it hasn't become substantiated yet. It's becoming substantiated through this life process that we're living, which is kind of like, I like to think that we live in the greatest story. Like all these myths are, is we're living it right, right now. It's a living mythology. And it's also a collective, like there's nothing, the only thing that separates us from each other and from nature and from the divine is our own misguided perception. Our misguided perception may have been the work of the ancient gods, but there is more evidence to support that the original creators of the Garden of Eden might have planted a seed on Earth. It's as though something slipped past the redactors in the Bible. A little bit of truth came through, instead of all the lies that the Demiurge has spread. Up next, the Tree of Life and its imprint on the world. to announce uh, the first uh, synthetic cell. As soon as uh, we had these two sequences, uh, we thought if this is supposed to be the smallest genome of a self-replicating species, could there be even a smaller genome? Could we understand the basis of cellular life at the genetic level? On May 21st, 2010, this historic announcement was made by Craig Venter on the first fully functioning reproducing cell controlled by synthetic DNA. Every protein of this cell was based on a synthetic code they had developed. As exciting as this was for bringing in a new era of science, the question was posed, then what is life if we can just create it through a code? There are some experts that have suggested that an ancient blueprint was left behind. In 1929, an American archaeologist named Matthew William Sterling began suspecting that artifacts emerging out of Mexico belonged to a time much earlier than the suspected Olmecs. He concluded that these artifacts were actually Mayan. In 1941, Sterling unearthed a large carved stone monument in the Mesoamerican site Izapa of Chiapas, Mexico. He named this Stella V. And Stella Five is a description. It's a sketch of exactly the type of world tree that keeps showing up in different forms all over the world in every indigenous culture you look for. One of the things that's a very common element that we see in the Mayan version are birds that are nesting in a tree. 
Then there's also the belief that in the upper part of the tree, it sort of represents the tangible manifest world. And then the area of the tree that goes below the surface of the earth represents the underworld. The Mayan tree of life depicts the oneness of humanity, that we all come from the same root and that we've all branched out to become one of many. The Mayan tree of life may not look like a coded depiction for the human genome. However, researchers started mapping its imagery. They counted 12 human figures, a dozen animals, over 25 botanical or inanimate objects, and nine stylized deity masks carved into the stone. Given the multiple overlapping scenes, it appears to be a narrative. But what is the narrative? And could Sterling's suggestion that these images belonged to a much older culture be just the beginning of its origin? Well, uh, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Um, in the Garden of Eden, there are actually two trees of significance. One of them is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve eat from, thus entering into a state where they may begin to make responsible choices for which they will have to bear the costs. And the other is the tree of life. When the Demiurge drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he states his motive, and the motive is kind of eerie. He says, this, this has to be done. They have to be driven out of the Garden of Eden. They've eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The next thing they will do is eat of the tree of life. And then they will become gods like us. That statement is actually in Genesis. What on earth is going on there? What does that, what does that mean? Is there some, is there some deeply buried secret of transcendence that demiurgic and archonic forces have concealed from us from so long? Is there a, is there a tree of life? Is there, is there a, a something beyond what we think of as, as the, the span of human life? Some, some eternity that is, that is offered to us. One meaning that people give to it is that it was the tree that leads to physical immortality. If you look at the old Mesopotamian writings, one of the big conflicts between humans and the gods was the gods did not want humanity to have immortality. Most people interpret that to be physical immortality, that we, we live and die too soon, it goes too quickly. And meanwhile, the gods were said to have lived 20,000 years or 50,000 years or longer, so why not humans? And the idea was that humans were perhaps programmed that way to die more quickly so they couldn't be like the gods and so the tree of life by that interpretation would be that this is the formula or this is the knowledge for how you attain that much longer